This morning's scripture reading will be Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You can follow along in the Pew Bible on page 844. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, with so he does not regard the offering any more, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and your wife of your youth, for whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did you not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Says the Lord of hosts, Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say... In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the Lord or the God of justice? Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we are an encouragement to you. What a wonderful and beautiful weekend. Uh, Not only the beautiful weather, but last night, the Young at Heart banquet was just amazing. And now here we are at a beautiful Sunday morning, God's, uh, the Lord's day, the day for his family to come together and to be together to worship him and also to encourage each other, to stir each other up to love and good works. We also look forward to next weekend. Next weekend on Saturday also will be a big day. We'll have the single mom car care clinic. And there are business card size invitations in the window seals and also scattered throughout the foyer. Uh, There are still open slots and that's coming up just six days from now, this coming Saturday. So please put a few of these in your pocket and be thinking about a single mom that would benefit. And this afternoon, tomorrow at work, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a neighbor, a friend that you have, let them have the opportunity to experience the love of God. And uh, they can call and they can make their appointments so that it'll be efficient. And there are, not only is there a need for you to invite, but also there is a need uh, for helpers. Uh, We really have quite a bit of help in the area of the men and of the teenagers. Uh, What we need is we need help uh, with a few more ladies. And so if a few more of you ladies are willing to help uh, the, the ladies, uh, may, you may be helping do nails or help with the food that served the ladies and their children while they're waiting uh, and things like that. If you would like to help in that way, Tracy Cowan or Stephanie Porter uh, would be the two that you could see. And if you do not know them, you can see any of us on staff or you can even call uh, the church office or you can email at church at mountjuliet.org and we'll be glad to connect you there. And then the very next day uh, will be family. Family day. Family day next Sunday morning, same schedule, but do note, Sunday afternoon will be very different. Uh, There will not be a 6 p.m. service here Sunday afternoon. That service will take place at 1 o'clock. There will be a catered meal under the tent. Tony and Tammy Torres are going to cater that, and that ought to make you hungry beginning about right now hearing that news. 
Now, there are about 13 different areas for you to sign up. If you haven't signed up yet, please be sure to do that because that helps us make plans. Uh, also, a few of them, uh, tickets need to be bought this week. If you're planning on going to the zoo or the sounds game, please sign up uh, today. Also, there are boxes there to drop your checks in for those two. They're prepay. And, uh, and so be looking at what you and your family can do together Sunday afternoon and what God's family can do together Sunday afternoon. It's wonderful for families to worship together to eat together and to play together as well as to work together. And uh, this coming weekend, we'll work together on Saturday. We'll worship together. Uh, Sunday morning, we'll eat together at around lunchtime and then uh, we'll worship again together and then we'll go and enjoy some time together in re relaxation. And so uh, we're thankful for that opportunity and we're even excited about that opportunity. When we think about our family, we're so thankful that Jimmy Tate this past week, uh, he asked for forgiveness of sins. He asked for Brother Pat Hackney was visiting him in the hospital and uh, he expressed that he wanted to be restored. And uh, they prayed together and we're letting you know that as a church family today that your brother uh, wants your forgiveness. He wants God's forgiveness. His health is still such that he cannot be out and about right now. And uh, we do pray that he'll be able to do that soon. Uh, but we are thankful uh, for our brother and we are thankful for uh, his desire to be close to God and to be right with God. And we hope that that's how all of us feel. Our faith is worth fighting for. When we think about faith and family, that's two things that we should never give up on. Those are two things that we ought to be willing to fight for uh, to the very end. Today, as we think about family, we think about that question, why marry? And I shared with you last week the fact that one of my buddies, just after I'd only been married a few years, had been talking to other acquaintances and they all encouraged him not to marry. And he was very concerned about that and then asked me, what do you think I ought to do? Do you think I ought to marry? You've been married a few years. Are you going to say what all of them said or, or do you think it's worth it? And so with that in mind, we, we think about a question that even though that was about 25 years ago, if there's a question that's being asked more and more often, it would be this question. This question is asked from those that are seeking to live a spiritual life, but this is also asked from those that are very much just living life in a secular sense. U.S. News and World Reports did an article, uh, they published an article just uh, a few years ago, and they gave nine reasons you should get married. Now keep in mind, this is strictly from a secular standpoint. I'm not advocating this article. I'm just, by this introduction, I'm just allowing us to, to open our minds, get ourselves on the same page and think about this is a topic that is ongoing where there are so many people that, that they would argue and say, marriage isn't worth it. Marriage isn't good. Well, if you wanted secular answers of why to marry, they say it's cheaper. I, I like that. It wasn't in this article, but I like that quote, you know, two can live as cheap as one, as long as one doesn't eat. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it is, it is supposed to be cheaper uh, too. It's better for the economy because married couples, um, they have a higher uh, income statistically. It, uh, married couples help the neighborhood statistically. They buy more homes and, and married uh, women with their children have better insurance than non-married women and their children. Uh, children who are children of married 
people have a more stable environment. All these are statistical from a secular aspect, okay? Mothers are less stressed than are married statistically. Children have more opportunities statistically, better social networks statistically, and the longer you wait, the less likely you are to get married. I'm not saying I agree with all that. I'm just throwing that out to say this to you. This is a regular conversation. You're going to be in conversation with your with a, a friend. You're going to be in conversation with a coworker, and they genuinely are going to say to you, "I just don't really see the need to marry." And should we jump in and say, "Yeah, you're right. Marriage is no big deal. There's a lot of other options of ways to live." Now we do know that Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who choose to remain single can be holy and they can do great things in life. But here is the problem. The problem that many individuals today, when they say, I'm deciding not to marry or I'm deciding to delay marriage, they are not delaying their sexual intimate relationships with others. Cohabitating is higher than it's ever been. Sexual immorality is higher statistically than it's ever been. And so today when people say, I'm deciding not to marry, it's not to choose a holy life committed to God as a rule of thumb. Sure, there would be those that do that. But so the problem is whenever the holiness is sacrificed to find another model or way of life. And so what if we could ask God? What if, what if I could just say, hey, you know, I've got God on the phone right here and, and you're wanting to know why marriage. Let's, let's just let God tell us some things about marriage. And so that's what we're trying to do in this series. And, and I pointed out to you last week, we do not want to stir up past guilt of sins that maybe you've committed in your life and you're so sorry you did those and you've been forgiven. Isn't it wonderful that God is forgiving because none of us here are perfect. Or maybe you have experienced the pain of someone else that hasn't lived God's way in holiness in marriage or relationships and, and it's hurt you and it's hurt your family. And we're not trying to stir up those things to, to, so that you'll leave here this morning and say, that was so depressing today. But at the same time, we must, we must be the voice that holds up God's truth. And so at a time where a lot of questions are being asked about marriage, we ought to be the ones holding up the truth to say, well, here's what God says about marriage. And so that's all we're trying to accomplish. We realize it's important. We realize it's of great significance, but that's what we're seeking to accomplish in this series as we think, why marriage? Last week, we looked at the fact that if God was going to answer this, he would tell us, number one, as we go into Genesis, to avoid loneliness. Genesis 2 and 18, when Adam was alone, he said it wasn't good. And the result was he was going to make a helper comparable for him. And then number two, last week, we looked at the fact it was to be fruitful and multiply. Most individuals have a sexual desire that they want to fulfill one day. Most individuals also reach a time in their life where they want to have offspring. And so God is saying, let me tell you why I created marriage. I created marriage because that is the environment, the only environment, where I want the sexual life to be experienced and I want children to be born. 
Now in Genesis, the first chapter in 27, he talked about God making them male and female, and then he blessed them in 28, and he gave them the command, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, that is the environment for both the raising of children and the sexual activity as God's designed it. So if we were going to say, why marriage? That would be very much a part of why God would say, I've designed marriage. Today, I'd like for us to go in to Malachi to look at another passage where God would say, let me teach you some things about marriage. You know, I, I try real hard when, when I teach and preach to you. I try, and I know all of our teachers and preachers here do this. We try hard not to lift verses out of context. And so for just a few minutes, you may think, wow, we've left this series. I'm not leaving the series this morning, but, but for just about five to 10 minutes here, I want us to take just a moment to notice the context of Malachi 2. Because then when we understand the context, then we can have a greater understanding and appreciation for what he says about marriage. Malachi is a book that was written at the same time Nehemiah uh, was, was living his life and trying to build back the wall. It was a time where, where Israel or Judah had returned back to, to rebuild the temple and, uh, and, and time had gone by and now they're trying to build back the wall and enough time had gone by that they also started to live ungodly lives. You would think now finally they get to go back home. They're going to be devoted to God. And instead, they started losing their devotion to God. And so Malachi is a book about judgment. It's a book where he constantly is saying to them in this short book, can I talk to you about some things that just are not holy? They're not right. And then they continually come back and say, whoa, why are you saying this to us? And he comes back and says, hello, it's black and white right here. Are you not seeing this? And we'll see a taste of that even here in Malachi, the second chapter. Malachi 2, 1 through 9 is about the priest being corrupt. Now, really, Malachi 1 gets into the idea of the priest being corrupt. But the idea here is the religious leaders are corrupt. The result is going to be that the people are going to start living corrupt lives. We're going to see the word treacherous several times in this passage. You're going to see it in verse 10, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15. And the word treacherous is, the, the, the Hebrew in it is something like bogad. And it is the idea of being unfaithful. And this whole chapter is about covenants. Now, please get this, because when we start moving, we may kind of move at some things a little bit fast, but if you can hang everything that we study today in Malachi 2 on this skeleton, it, it really help it make sense to you. The first thing he does is he talks to the leaders and he says, you have violated the covenant that God made with leaders. Well, who were the leaders? These particular ones were the priests. God spoke to the Levites when they first were designated by God to be the spiritual leaders. And, and so he spoke to them and he says, you're not doing this anymore. The result is the people started violating the covenant with God because the leaders were violating covenant with God. Then the next thing was the fact that the, the people violated the covenant of marriage. And then the next thing is how does that affect children when people violate the covenant of marriage? So notice this, the covenant with the father, the covenant with the spouse, and how it affects children. Most of everything 
in Malachi 2 will fit on that skeleton, especially when the covenant with the Father starts with the leaders and goes to the people. And so let's look at this together. Malachi, the second chapter in verse five, he is calling them out for their unfaithfulness. And he says in five and six, you remember this is what the Levites said in the very beginning that they were willing to do. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And this is talking about his covenant with Levi. And I gave them, the tribe of Levi, and I gave them to him after he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. For those of you that have been here a while, remember that pyramid of life? Remember the base, what do you believe about God? What you believe about God forms your values and your convictions and what your values and convictions are forms your behavior. Notice this first thing, they reverenced God. What do you believe about the name of God? In the beginning, the Levi says, we believe the name of God is reverent. We believe that it's holy. We stand in awe of God and his name. Notice the next thing. The law of truth was in his mouth. So when they spoke, these religious leaders, they spoke truth. And justice was not, or injustice was not found in their lips. In other words, these leaders didn't go around and mistreat people by what they said, but also knows the next line, but what they did when he says, he walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. They reverenced God. And so what was said was truth. And the way they talked and dealt with people was very just. And when their conduct was carried out, they didn't mistreat people. And what was the result? Many people that followed those leaders were turned away from sin. Today, when I look at the statistics... I want to tell you something that breaks my heart, but also brings great concern. Statistically, there's not a lot of difference in families in the world and families in religious circles. Is it something that we as leaders are doing wrong? Because that's how Malachi 2 deals with it. He says, let me tell you, the first thing that went wrong was the leadership. And when the leadership went wrong, the people started going wrong. And so he says, let me tell you. Now keep in mind, that's, that's why he's dealing with it too. And he says, let me take you back to a better day. Let me take you back to when the Levites, the priests were really speaking my word. They were really living it out. He said, you know what people did? People turned away from sin. What are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong that our families aren't turning away from sin? Is the message not clear? Is it not backed up with lives that practice what they preach? I ask you to be thinking about that. I ask you to be praying about that. And I ask you to be honest about that. And if you genuinely and sincerely know something that we as leaders ought to be doing that is not in line with the will of God, we humbly ask you to let us know what you see in God's will that we're missing. Why is it that, that, that people wouldn't say out in the community, why wouldn't people say, I'll tell you one thing, you can recognize a family that's a part of the Mount Julia Church of Christ. Oh, they are so strong. They are so devoted to each other. There's just, there's just something really different. 
And, and people out in the world would probably say, I don't know what it is, but I know this. There's something really different. And we'd be able to say it's because our families have turned away from sin. Our families have devoted themselves to keeping the covenant of God. And when we keep the covenant of God, the ripple effect, the direct ripple effect is that it affects the covenants that family make with each other. And so here's what it was supposed to be. Skip down and, and read verse eight with me and notice what it was in that day and time. The, and he's still talking to the leaders here. And notice what he says to them. But you have departed from the way. See, he says, the Levi didn't do that in the beginning. The Levitical tribe, the priests of the Levitical tribe began to do that. Now notice the next thing. You have caused many to stumble at the law. Number three, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. He says, leaders, do you realize you took that covenant that was made with Levi in the very beginning and you've just corrupted it. And you know what's happened? Now that's caused the people to also stumble because you're not living the way that you ought to live. So what's the answer? This may sound strange to you how many times, if you'll start noting this in your mind that you read scripture, how many times God takes the solution back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And that is interesting when so many scholars today try to undermine the credibility of Genesis 1 and 2 and so many writers, inspired writers of the scriptures, they don't undermine the credibility of it. They go back and use it as their source of authority time and time again. And so here he's looking at priests that were far off track and he says, you know what the solution is? Look at this Genesis 1 and 2 language, verse 10, Malachi 2 and 10. Have we not all one father? Family language there. Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously? There's that word for unfaithfulness. There's that word for why are you violating covenants? He's talking to the priest. You're violating the Levitical covenant that God made with you. You're causing the people to violate the covenant that God made with Israel. Why are you dealing so treacherously, notice, with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Why should we be concerned about doing the right thing? Why should we be concerned about keeping a commitment? Hey, I'll meet you tomorrow at five. Will you? Why should we be concerned about honoring a commitment where, where we stand before others and say, I, I confess that Jesus Christ is a son of God. And before others, we devote our life to him and we're baptized into the waters of baptism for the remission of sins, raised in newness of life. Why should we be concerned with whether or not we honor that commitment that we've made? Because we have one father and we know who he is and we reverence his name. He's not just any father. He's the almighty father. He is God. We love him and this reverence and this fear, we cherish his promises and we are fearful of the promised punishment. And if we do not know the goodness and the severity of God, both, we're going to miss the importance of honoring and keeping covenants. 
But also notice if we are all one father, why should, why should I keep my word to you? If you want to come at this very same statement from another angle, well, you and I are the same offspring. In other words, there's no partiality with God. There ought not be with us. And so there's worth and value because you're made after the child of God and, and or you are a child of God, made after the image of God. And, and I mean, by that, I'm not talking spiritually. By that, I'm talking strictly physically offspring. We are all made by God. And so we deserve to be treated as an offspring of God and we deserve or have the responsibility to treat others as offsprings of God. I want you to think about this. A society that bears in an honorable fashion their responsibility to each other builds a fabric that is unselfish. Anytime we start breaking covenants individually, as families, with coworkers, with friends, what we're doing is we're taking this fabric of integrity and commitment that a strong society is built upon and that fabric has become individual strands of selfishness. Individual strands of selfishness will never build a strong fabric of a community. Like when you, when you think, let's go back just to the topic of family. Do you want a strong family? If you will allow faith in God, God's word, God's will to shape you in your family and your family members will allow God to shape them, collectively working together in this, you'll form a strong fabric of a relationship. But anytime somebody in that family starts to practice selfishness, it's been pulled out and now it's just a strand and it doesn't support it doesn't support others. When mom and dad both start acting very selfish, it's not the best support system for children. When everybody that lives down a street starts acting really selfish, it's not the best support system for a community. When brothers and sisters in Christ concern more about themselves than God and more about themselves than each other, it's not a healthy support system within a church family. And so this covenant is vital. It's vital to realize what we should be keeping. Now I'd like for you to notice, Let's skip a slide and notice when we say God says reasons you should get married. We looked at the first two last week. I'd like for you to see this one in, and I reworded this about a thousand times before I just landed on this. And, and there, there's so many ways that this can be said because it's such a broad topic. But ultimately we should get married to be holy. But please realize I'm not suggesting to you that someone who's single is less holy. That's not the case at all. I'm saying like if verse one and verse two moves you, I'm not, uh, let me start, not verse one. Point one and point two. If point one and point two moves you to where you say, I want an intimate relationship with someone. I, I, want, I want to have children. I, I want that kind of relationship. Well, if that's what you want in one and two, then there is a holy way to achieve that. And there is an unholy way to achieve that. And so when we look at Malachi 2, he is showing 
hey, here's how it was if you would have done this in a holy way. And then he says, here is how it is when you're profaning it. You're taking that which is holy and you're bringing sin into it and it's not holy anymore. Now it is profane. And so the, the, the first thing that they were doing that he brings out after just violating covenant with God is he gets, because that was with the priest and the covenant they made with Levi. But, but now he goes a little bit broader and he talks about the covenant that God made with Israel. And, and he says, right out of the gate, I see that you have started taking wives of the women that in the very beginning, when I made this covenant with you, I told you there were seven nations because of their idolatry. I did not want you taking spouses from them. And now you're doing it. Here, here's how he said it. Let's read together. Malachi 2 and 11. Judah has dealt treacherously. In other words, they have been unfaithful to the covenant that God has made with them. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Why? For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. I know various translations read different there. I, I love this particular translation where it's the idea, if God loves something and wants to keep it holy, we ought to love it and we ought to want to keep it holy. And so now he says, he explains how they violated it. He says, he has married the daughter of a foreign God. And notice the God there spelled with a little g and the idea of a daughter of God is the, is the idea, that's the description of a woman who worships idols. And he says, I told you not to do this. Remember in Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, here's a glance at it on this next slide. Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter in verse three and four, this is what he said with them hundreds of years before when he was making this covenant with them. In verse one and two, he's mentioned the seven nations that are mightier and they're ungodly, they're full of idolatry. And he says to them in three and four, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your son. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Notice God is not a racist here. God is not against them because he does not want them marrying because of some ethnicity, uh, race, color skin, whatever it may be. He did not want them to marry because he says, you're going to choose wives. You're going to choose husbands that they have devoted their life to an idol. And you're going to say, oh, oh it won't affect me. Like Solomon in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, late in his life, he took women from these very same places places that they were not to take them and it turned his heart from God just as warned in the covenant that God was making with them and so we need to honor God by the way we participate in a holy fashion in marriage so who is it that God wants us to participate in marriage with well he wants us to participate in marriage with someone who is going to be a blessing for us in our relationship with God. Someone who's going to be a blessing for us in our relationship with God. When we think of binding, yoked relationships, what is the strongest or heaviest? It is us in our relationship with Christ. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take your yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Yoke up with me, Christ says. Now, second to Christ, what is the tightest yoked relationship 
that we ever experience on this earth. The second Titus, hopefully first, we yoke with Christ. The second Titus is that we yoke with a spouse. Now, now think there's, in these two, there's one thing common in each of them, right? You and Christ, you and your spouse, yoke. Picture of that wooden yoke that you go together. You can't go separate directions. You're yoked. You and Christ, you and your spouse. What happens if you choose a spouse who's not going in the direction of Christ? It's very, very diff difficult to stay yoked and moving in the direction with Christ being married to someone who's yoked and not moving in the direction of Christ. So is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. Are you married to an unbeliever? You remember in 1 Corinthians 7, there were those that were converted apparently in Corinth that their spouse wasn't, and they were strongly told to not leave their believing spouse. And instead, they were told that they could bring the holiness into that relationship. That's also the teaching in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, when women were married to husbands who were not believers, they were to be the example of holiness in that relationship. But if you are single, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, God makes it very clear to the widows that widows must marry in the Lord. In other words, they must marry those that are walking yoked with Christ and that is the greatest blessing. You know, I, I know some of these traditions are kind of going by the wayside, but just to illustrate or apply the point, you know, you think of, you think of a, a young man that goes to a father and he asks if he can marry the daughter, his daughter. In a sense, he's asking for approval of the father. Do you approve of me becoming the husband of your wife, of, of your daughter. And in that, think about from a spiritual standpoint. What if we go before the heavenly father? Say, Lord, do you approve of who I want to share the rest of my life with? When we think about this, we think about something that it's challenging because if we do not have this in mind as we begin looking for whom we spend time with, looking for whom we date, it's very difficult for many after they fall in love to then come back and say, hmm, maybe that's not someone I should devote my life to because they're not going in the same direction of Christ. And so if you're single today, I want to urge you. I want to urge you to plant deep in your heart the seed and the desire to say, on the day that I get married, first and foremost, I want God to be pleased with the choice of the companion that I bring into my life. In other words, would God look at that and say, that is holy. That is a wonderful choice. And that would be the highest approval that any of us could have. 
we'll come back next. Well, I don't know if we'll finish this particular sermon next Sunday morning. Uh, we, we may do a little bit different things out of Proverbs on family day, but maybe even the next week we'll come back and, and do a little bit more here. So plant this deep in your memory, study through it. In a few weeks, we'll come back to it. This morning, do you realize that the plea for holiness is to come down deep into our heart and it is to affect every aspect of our life? It literally is to affect how we love. It is to affect who we choose to love in certain ways. It is to affect our family. And today, if everyone in our family is committed to God, and we would say our faith and our family, the way God has designed it, is worth fighting for, there's going to be a notable difference of deep, rich blessings in our life, not because, wow, we are so good. It's going to be deep blessings in our life because God has blessed us in ways of protection and of righteousness. This morning, is there any way that we can help you? Is there any way that, that we can help you take steps closer to God? If you're ready this morning to become a Christian and be immersed into Christ, uh, we'd love to assist you with that. If you're, you're a Christian and you want to be restored, uh, there's not anybody here perfect. Uh, if we're saved here this morning, it's only because of the grace of God and because we're forgiven. Can we help you in any way? Come as we stand, as we sing.